Hello, and welcome to the Ugly Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Joy. Please make sure to listen to me right here on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, CastBox, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Overcast, and Radio Public. I invite all listeners to come take a journey with me, and so well (laughs) into my life, for now anyway, and maybe the first four episodes or so will delve into why this is called The Ugly Girl, and we'll peel back some of the layers. And then we'll gradually go into what I like to call social matters. Now, I'm not trying to be political or religious, and that's not my aim here, folks. And so just the ugly truths behind some of those sad social matters that we will eventually discuss that we argue and debate over and tussle with every day. But first, let me introduce myself and just go for it. So this is my first podcast. And when talking about oneself, where do you begin? The millennials and beyond seem to have this down so much better than us, Gen Xers, such as myself. (laughs) These young people can't stop talking about themselves. Definitely not a hater. Our generation was just a little bit more guarded and a little bit more private. So we grew up watching social media come to life. We grew up watching telephones go from rotary to cordless to everyone now has a cell phone. And it's kind of like watching God create woman from a man's rib, right? It's really cool to be a part of such a transitional decade. Gen X is where we watch all these things come into play, from record players to eight tracks, those little cassettes you would pop in and you couldn't record them, to CDs, I'm sorry, you could not rewind them, to CDs, disc, CD disc, and the tapes, of course, the tapes that we used to take our pencils and roll, try to roll things back and fix them. And you know how you would have to hit the two record buttons on your recorder to catch your favorite tune on the radio. So yeah, really cool generation to become a part of. And I just want to take you through some of the good times, the bad times, and yes, even the ugly times in my life. And I will attempt to take you decade by decade. So for the record, I'm 43 and 79 was definitely my year that I was born. Uh, I got in on the tail end of that year, that decade, so to speak, of that generation, so to speak, uh, but still became a Gen Xer. And now that I look back, I'm so proud to be a part of that and live through so many different transitional changes that we got a chance to witness from fashion to music to, you know, just a plethora of things that the big hair, the doubled up socks, things of that nature. Um, Going to the roller skating rink, going to a friend's house, pen pals, playing mash with your friends. So just some of the things that we enjoy doing in our generation. So I want to go back, right? I'm trying to give you a decade by decade, blow by blow. But unfortunately, I probably won't be able to remember a lot of things because such is life, right? Things seem to breeze by. Some years seem longer than others. Some are shorter than others. And then we have the little glimpse and little brief flashes of our memories, right? So I'm going to take you back to 
as far back as my first childhood memory as a three-year-old in 1982, attending the World's Fair with my parents, of course, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it was the KIEE, the Knoxville International Energy Expo. And I remember, strangely enough, Expo being like one of these, these uh, like, you know, go-to words for, and for, you know, these big conventions that they would have in the 80s and 90s and maybe early 2000s. Everybody was Expo this, Expo that for conventions that were larger than life. Um, so back to the World's Fair, I remember my dad carrying me in his arms and he was probably carrying me because we had been walking, you know, on and off at the World's Fair. And I do remember going up in the Sun Spear. Now, for those who are of a different generation and haven't had the privilege of going to a World's Fair, Every World's Fair always leaves an attraction that says to the city and to the world, hey, we were here. So I'm almost positive that if you go back to Knoxville, Tennessee, you will see the Sun Spear. And that's been there since 1982. And so the Sun Spear allowed you to go up and look directly into the sun. That was, you know, the energy part. And I do remember going up in this huge elevator. I'm sure others were there as we waited in a line, as you do any attraction that you want to see in, in an amusement-type park atmosphere. And we went up in this dark elevator. And I remember us entering a somewhat dark room. And I can't remember if we had glasses or not. I'm, I don't think we did because the object was you would sit in this globe that looked like the sun while looking into the sun. I remember sitting on my dad's lap and sharing this very new age experience with him. And so, you know, after that, we, of course, I'm sure went back to the hotel, got rest. We had driven to this World's Fair from where we are in Memphis. So from Memphis to Knoxville, that's about an eight hour drive. And uh, it was really cool to see that and to just have that memory of the sun spear. And you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong um, about that. However, um, I'm almost certain I am 100% that that's what happened. So um, as we go through uh, the ugly girl, if you hear something, you want me to discuss something, you wanna talk about something, you wanna ask me questions, Go to uglygirl2479 at gmail.com. That's uglygirl, U-G-L-Y-G-I-R-L, 2479. Those are the numbers. And those numbers actually mean something to me because I was born on the 24th day of my month and I was born in, you guessed it, 79. So you can leave questions, comments, and who knows, you maybe want to take a walk down memory lane with me because some of you, I'm sure listening, definitely have had some of those flashback memories and or participated and or went to a World's Fair during your lifetime, especially if you are a Gen X or you definitely probably went to a World's Fair. So, um, but I, I remember that 
And like I said, I remember walking across like this plaza, going back to the hotel, resting up, and of course, traveling back home those eight hours. Um, sometimes we have those type of memories. And so just moving forward a little bit, and I, I, I can also remember my first, uh, how can I say this? My first understanding or acknowledging death, acknowledging um, funerals and what that meant. So I do remember going to Big Daddy's funeral. So just to give you some background. So Big Daddy was my step-grandfather. My grandmother had remarried by the time me and my sister had come along and my grandfather had as well. So I always tell people I had six grandparents because when they were going through whatever they were going through at those times, we weren't born. So I have, I had Granny and Big Daddy. So Granny is my dad's mom and Big Daddy is my Granny's husband, who was her second husband. And then I had Granddaddy and I had Grandma Ruth, which was his second wife. And surprisingly, all of them got along very well. I remember my dad telling me a story when I was older about how, you know, if you ever have a blended family, and I know that a lot of people have blended families now, but I found it very interesting that he told me this story about how when they re when each party remarried, my grandmother cooked dinner, a big dinner, granny, she cooked a big dinner. And she had my grandfather and his new wife over and her and her new husband. They sat down, they ate dinner, they played cards. And my granny was just like, look, we have these children in common and we're going to have to all learn to get along. And from that day forward, I'm sure because growing up, I never saw the animosity or hatred toward either party Everyone was very loving and caring, and my grandma, would, granny would have big Thanksgiving dinners, and <clears throat> I'm sure that my grandfather and my grandmother Ruth probably attended a couple of them. They were always invited. We were always they were always laughing and giggling and being very happy in this amazing atmosphere that my grandmother and my granny had created. So <clears throat> Big Daddy would always be sitting in the uh, this in glass porch that my grandmother had. And I remember we, and when I say we, I'm going to be referring to my sister and I. We would go in, greet them, of course, as children do, and we would run past them. Now, what were we running to? We were running to this buffet that my granny had set up in her dining room. And on, in this, on this buffet, on top of it, were um, glass candy jars. And in those, those glass candy jars, they had the suction lid cups and uh lids rather and so we would rush there hi kiss kiss everybody hug run there get our candy and what was there was the peppermints and the those strawberry candies that were wrapped in those little strawberry um packages cellophane packages that looked like strawberry that were sweet they had the butterscotch wrapped in the yellow cellophane and i don't really care for that and bubble gum and it was like double bubble. It wasn't the best bubble gum, but as a kid, you know, you don't care. You're just kind of like, oh, these sweets and everything. So we would grab our candy and plop down on the couch. And I remember us 
always watching, you know, watch whatever program TV was on, right? TV program in this day and age, you know, you have 500 channels, 600 channels. We only had a few channels and at midnight, the TV went off. Boop. Do you remember that sound with the little bars? TV was off at, at midnight. So we would plop that on the couch and we would watch Dukes of Hazard. I remember vividly watching Dukes of Hazard at my granny's house, eating candy, watching Bo, Daisy, and Duke, and uh, that crazy boss hog. He was always eating something with white on, and that silly deputy that he always had with him that was always just like a fumbling, bumbling idiot, right? Um, <clears throat> and so, um, I remember when Big Daddy passed away. So this is the this is the death part. And I remember very well. I was still small. I mean, I guess maybe four or five. I don't know. But I know, um, I, I'm sorry, I can't get the exact date. But I do remember my dad carrying me for his comfort, my comfort. Who knows? You know, when you're in, in mourning, when you're in grief, you kind of cling to what's pure, what's natural. Your children, pure, natural, untainted. You know, and you're kind of leaning into their, like, comfort, correct? So, um, and so I remember going around. My dad was carrying me, and we were going around that circle where you view the body. And I could look over my dad's shoulder. I could see Big Daddy in the casket. And I think it was a white casket with red velvet interior. Don't ask me how I remember that. But I'm sure that my mom and or my aunt, my dad's sister, could verify that. Or probably some of my older cousins could verify that. And I also remember that we did not go to the actual grave site with my dad because it was raining that day. And me and my sister stayed in the limousine while the adults braved the weather. It was very muddy. It was... It would have been too much, I think, for us to come. And probably, looking back, I'm kind of glad that we probably didn't have that experience, me and my sister, watching a casket go down in the grave because children process grief differently. And I didn't learn that until years later when my father passed on this day. And I had to kind of cradle my nephews, right? So um, I think that... I'm glad that I didn't see that. So it was very, I remember being very muddy that day and it was still raining when they came out. It, their shoes were muddy. Everything was muddy. And I'm sure that my grandmother cried. I never saw her really evoke that emotion. Um, I always saw her as happy, strong, you know, and that generation, the one that my dad grew up in, they were serious, right? Gen Xers, we were private, guarded. We learned that from our traditionalists and people, baby boomers and such, because, you know, they were, in, they lived in different times. You know, my father and my mother grew up in the Jim Crow South. They grew up in segregation. And I will have, share more stories about that and how listening to their stories helped transform me and make me who I am and, and, and how I was kind of crafted and molded because that's what parents should do. They should be in the business of crafting, molding, and nurturing their children. So, um, yeah, I do remember that very vividly. And so, 
Um, and so I had a pretty normal childhood growing up, right? I did not, um, it wasn't bad, it wasn't abusive, it wasn't any of those things. And so, I remember, you know, holidays, birthdays, you know, celebrations that we would have in our home and commemorating things. And I remember specifically one of my favorite Christmas, probably was 86, 87, and my parents had gotten me the ultimate folks the strawberry shortcake baby doll bonnet and all so I had the baby doll when you squeeze her she smelled the sweet strawberries I had the I had a tea set the table everything was made a little strawberry and I also had a strawberry shortcake bike and it was really fun and I remember the red and pink tassels that you would have to attach. And my dad built that bike on Christmas. And um, he let me put the little sticker on the little basket that was in front of my, in front of the, the, the you know, everybody had a little basket or something in front of their, in front of their uh, bike. And I remember I had training wheels. And boy, I was so glad it, I'm glad to this day that it doesn't really snow that much down south, which is really cool because I literally got to ride that bad baby the first day I had it. And did I put on a helmet? Did I put on knee pads? Did I put on? No, heck no. You know, this was, you know, we were daredevils. We were born daredevils and we were going to take it to another level all the time. So helmets, no. Knee pads, no, nobody had that. If you ask anybody who grew up in our generation, we definitely have some skint elbows, skint knees, and some war stories from just scars that we accumulated <laughs> over the time. But, um, and also, I remember um, us to a certain age riding our bikes through the house. I, I think that, you know, it, it was us, uh, we had a backyard, we had a front yard, we had a driveway. We lived in a predominantly white neighborhood back then. And, and um, you know, I think that us playing inside our house and riding our bikes inside our house before, of course, my parents put a lot of furniture in the dining room area, like a dining room table, china cabinet, mirrors and carpet and such. I remember us uh, riding our bikes, me and my sister, riding our bikes through the den, kitchen, dining room, entry hall, and around again. We just had a really, really good time in that space. And I feel like looking back to that, maybe uh, our parents were in constant protective mode, right? Because they also were the first African-Americans to purchase a home on their street. Um, and so it was easy for them to keep an eye on us when we would be playing you know when we were we were playing riding the house playing the house you know your sister's your best friend that type of thing uh, because some of my friends they they lived away because at the time we were also going to a Memphis magnet school now magnet schools were the big thing growing up 
what we call now charter schools. They were magnet schools and they were a little bit more diverse. They were a little bit more in the city. My mother also was a teacher. And so my dad also worked here downtown. So both of their jobs were in that direction of them dropping us off at school. And so, <laughs> you know, I feel like um, they were protecting us from the outside world to a certain degree, right? It's so much you can do. But if, if I think that parents want to try to preserve as much of the innocence, as much of the, they want to try to put on as much of the nurturing, they want to try to pour on as much of the love as possible while we're small and they still kind of have us in their, in their eyesight, right? So to talk about magnet schools, we went to Springdale at the time. I don't even think that school is there anymore. They, the Memphis City Schools probably use it, use it for a different different function now however at that time it was a elementary school and we went there and that kind of also takes me back to kindergarten and my first lie so people say fib fib i say lie 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 and my parents were the kind of people that when we went to our schools from preschool all the way up to high school my parents were the type of parents, because also my mother was a teacher. So my parents, they were the kind of parents that would go and they would meet the principals, the vice principals, the assistant principals, the entire staff, the janitors, the, the cafeteria ladies, our teachers. You know, they were very personable and very into our learning and, edu and being educated. And you, your mother doesn't have to be a teacher for your mom to and your parents to do that and or your mom or whatever your situation is is very important and i'm gonna tell you why because <laughs> this leads me back to my first lie my first spanking i was in kindergarten and i wanted a jello pudding pop and i think it was something like i couldn't get one a couple of days in a row for whatever reason and my mom and dad were gonna give me extra money to get one after school. And so this time I had decided to take matters into my own hands and I was going to hang on to this lunch money. And so I had gone to the gone through the lunch line and the lady was like, um, uh, Mr. Holmes didn't give you uh, lunch money. I said, no, he didn't. Now, the lunch lady was very sweet. She still gave me my lunch. I still sat down with the other children. I had lunch that day. Everything seemed fine and cool. You know how it is. You think everything going smooth. But keep in mind, as I told you, my parents were very uh, astute, very alert, very active in our education process from top to bottom. And so <laughs> I ate lunch, went to class. Everything was fine. So end of the day came. And I also think that my dad was going to be a little late. And I think I knew that in advance. So we knew this was not like today. Back in those days, you went into the cafeteria or you went into a room where a teacher could observe you, watch you, make sure you're good and wait for your parents to come. And so, <laughs> so I was there and it was perfect time. And this kid like, hey, you want to go get a jello pudding pop? I'm like, yeah, I have money. So we went to this little after school. They would have it set up in the school, down the hall from the cafeteria. Like, I remember very, very, go out the cafeteria. It was, you would bust the left or right, 
that's all right. And it was a little room that sold treats after school. And so that's why I got this Jello pudding pop. You know the ones, the ones that at the time our American dad, Bill Cosby, would advertise these Jello pudding pops. And whoever has never, if you ever had a Jello pudding pop back in the 80s, I'm telling you, they have done something to this food. I don't know what they did and how they're doing it. But back in those days, we had really good shit, right? We had really good snacks. So I went, I got my Jello pudding pop. I was happy. And so my dad came in to pick up, pick me up, and uh, he was talking to the lunch lady. Now, I'm not even thinking they talking about any of that other stuff. You know, probably my lunch card, whatever. And my dad said, so how was lunch today? I was good. We had a little conversation. How was school? Good. Everything's good. Did you eat lunch today? Yeah, I ate lunch today. But you, but how? Because you said you didn't have any money. Oh, um, no, the, the lunch lady, she gave me food, Dad. So, me not thinking. Of course, because you're a child, you're not thinking you're going to get in trouble. My dad gave me so many opportunities to tell the truth, and I just would not, t- I just would not do it. I would not do it. And so, when he got, he said, now, on the way home, Right before we got up on our exit, I distinctly remember my father saying, I'm going to have to spank you because you're lying. I immediately got scared. I don't think I had ever had a spanking before that. So when we got home, sure enough, he said why he was spanking me. He gave me this whole story. Why he was spanking me because I had lied about the lunch money and that I had ate this pudding pop and that I had lied to the lunch lady. And that's not how they were rearing me, my sister and I. So I had to get the spanking and it was not good. And I don't even think, when I think back, I don't think that getting that pudding pop was even worth that spanking. You know, I probably just should have told the darn truth and been through with it. But as a child, you think this is working out great. I'm going to get this Jell-O pudding pop. And it was all about me and the Jell-O pudding pop and nothing else. <laughs> so I paid dearly for that. But I survived. And I lived in a time where, you know, nobody was calling 911. Nobody was screaming child abuse. We weren't doing all of these things, right? So, I, you know, as we evolve as people and I see all these things and these parents are scared of the children and all of that, you know, our generation, we were scared of the parent before we were scared of the police. And we were scared of whoever else, you know, I'll bring you, I brought you here, I will take you out. That literally rang true for us because I don't even think we had 911 to call. So we were in trouble. I think you had to call the operator back then because we had the books, the uh, yellow pages and all white pages and everything. So good luck trying to call some emergency help, right? <laughs> Zero. Um, <laughs> and um, like I said, it, it taught me a lesson to just tell the truth, right? But we'll go through some more of that. Um, we'll go through some more of that because, you know, a shout out to my parents for being like hardcore sometimes because I literally was a rebel without a cause. I was very belligerent. Not all the time, but I definitely gave them hell and I definitely was in trouble and I probably lived in the principal's office when I was in elementary school. 
But I think that's because I really didn't like the elementary school that I ended up going to after this magnet school. And I didn't like my math teacher, Miss Thompson. So I just want to fast forward a little bit. So we are transitioning out of this school. When I say we, I remember I'm talking about my sister and I. So I was kindergarten, she was fourth grade. And my parents, um, I think they were waiting for space to open up in Brownsville Road which was like not that far from our house. It was one of the top public schools at the time for elementary school students. And me and my sister were just devastated by the talks going on in the house that we would have to change schools. I liked the Magnet School more because it was a little bit more uh, diverse. It was downtown. Magnet Schools had children from all over. You know, Brownsville Road, uh, close to the house, but predominantly white in a predominantly white middle class neighborhoods where I grew up. And it was um, it was it was a little tough, you know, to for that transition and, you know, going into first grade, trying to find my tribe and trying to, you know, connect with kids at this elementary school because a lot of the black students were bust in um, and. You know, it just took a while to really get to know myself and who I am. And so, you know, I kids can be cruel. Kids can be mean. So, you know, I was nervous and, you know, tall. That was a strike against me. Black, that was a strike against me. My hair was short. That was a strike against me. People are going to listen to this podcast and say, girl, please. My hair was short. I felt like that was a strike against me. <laughs> um, and I had buck teeth um, I was too young to get braces And <laughs> I just remember Not really feeling like I could fit into that That particular group of people And I had left my friends And it was traumatic So I'm kind of fast forwarding Like I You know fast forwarding to When I felt ugly When the word ugly really struck a chord with me. And I feel like it was second grade. I was in my yard and I was playing and I was minding my business. And all of a sudden I heard a car speed up. Now we lived on kind of like a very low incline. So when you were up, by the heel of the street it was very low kind of flat mostly but it was almost like a little slant and you could hear people coming down the street because some people would be speeding and they should not have been speeding and so this car a green car was coming down my street and i'm in my yard playing i could hear this car coming and they yelled out the window nigger and I felt like they hurled that racial slur, like they hurled a fastball in baseball. It hit me so hard that I could not believe it. If anybody seen my facial expressions, trust me, I was in shock. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. So I immediately ran into my house. My dad was there, but he was inside either watching a game on TV or probably in the garage. He was around. He was in the house. 
it was very rare that me and my sister were ever left by ourselves um, after school, after people came home from work. Yes, we would be there. We would have to lock up, lash key key at the whole nine. But daddy was there. I went in and I said, I couldn't say anything. And my dad looked at me and he said, pretty, what's wrong? My dad had a nickname for me. It was pretty, believe it or not. And I said, nothing. And I just stood there. And finally, I could tell, I knew my dad by, by now. We were very close. And so finally he came in, what's the matter? And I told him. I was, first of all, scared to say something because in my household we did not curse. And the word nigger was considered a curse word. That was considered a bad word. That was considered a ugly word. It was something you didn't use. And so I told my dad the events, everything that had happened. And he was very upset, but I said, they drove away. I was just scared, daddy. I was so scared. And and my dad, once he calmed down, once he realized he could not take further action as a parent, because this person was in a car driving God knows how long, uh, you know, speed limit. I remember him sitting me down in a kitchen chair and started the discussion of, you're different. Not in a sense that me as an individual, we as black people were different. You know, we hear about all of the things on the news now where parents are sitting down with their children, especially after the George Floyd incident and having conversations, especially when you have teen drivers, how to interact with police, how to, you know, conduct yourself. I had this conversation at eight folks. So I've always been able to kind of sort of pick up on the little undertones and the nuances. I had the conversation at eight that I was different because I was black. And in America, black was seen as ugly, different. And my dad just went on to have this nice conversation with me at a level that I could understand, you know? And so I think that's where I really start to see myself as an ugly person because someone had said something so vile to me that people would describe us as, describe us as, as in a people and people that did not like us, you know. So that really stuck with me for a very long time. And I think I just carried that with me and it wasn't my mother, it wasn't my father, it wasn't my sister. I didn't have a bad childhood. However, that was part of my mental psyche and not being able to overcome that and not, you know, because my dad called me pretty. That was his nickname for me. Pretty this, pretty that. Pretty, pretty, pretty. Or Joy Joy. That was another nickname for myself. And so, you know, it's a lot going deep into that memory. And so, hence, this is why this is called the ugly girl. Because I literally thought for years and years that I was ugly. Why would somebody want to be a friend, be my friend? Why would somebody want to, you know, even date me as I got older, you know? 
And so we're going to crack into that. And I'm going to try to take you decade by decade. Other than that, I had a great, simple fly by fly through elementary school. It was hard. It was difficult. You know, we had these uh, nuclear bomb drills, which was weird. But we can get into that as well. And I'll take you through the rest of it. But today, um, I just want to introduce you to myself explain i hope i've explained why i call this the ugly girl podcast i hope you tune in in two weeks where i'm going to kind of rush through my elementary and take you into my junior high years um and this is going to be a little bit longer than what even i expected today because it's the first one which is fine perfectly fine and so um like i stated uh Sorry, people. Like I said, this is my first podcast. So Uh, make sure to catch me on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Amazon Music, CastBox, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Overcast, and Radio Public. If you have any questions or concerns or you want to just take a walk down memory lane with me or you want me to discuss something as we go into our social matters, definitely reach out to me at uglygirl2479 at gmail.com. That's U-G-L-Y-G-I-R-L 2479 at gmail.com. Also, you can comment at and find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. So many to remember now. Also, soon I'll be ramping up a YouTube channel, The Ugly Girl 2479. Um, as I explained to you, 24 is a month, the day I was born in my month, and 79 was definitely my year. And before I close out my podcast today, I want to encourage anyone who may be going through life and having some mental health issues to make sure that you get all the help you need on the next podcast coming out July 21st, part two, Peeling Back the Layers with me, Joy. I'll definitely um, give you some more information Um, But in the meantime, if you go on to Google and put in mental health issues, mental health help, I'm sure you'll be able to pull up information to help you um, find what you need. Also, I want to take time out to give a couple of shout outs to some up and coming artists um, and people that I really admire. Fashion designer and founder Theo of the Bowery Social Club, B-O-W-E-R-Y. Uh, it's the Cat's Meow. Check it out. He's coming out. He came out with an amazing line of clothing. And it's at www.thebowerysocialclub.com. That's www.thebowerysocialclub.com. Thebowerysocialclub.com. Also, if you're looking to update your coffee table reading, check out The Queer Film Guide by Kyle Turner. This amazing book covers 100 great movies that tell LGBTQIA stories. And also, if you're looking to stay healthy with a customized meal prep, E5 Culinary with Chef Kaheen Emery at e5culinaryservices.com is where you can contact that gentleman and get your health on. So... Like I said, I thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking this journey with me. And uh, tune in on July 21st for part two of the Ugly Girl podcast. 
streaming on all major platforms and peeling back the layers with me, your host, Joy. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you and bye for now.